0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter five. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles in the rack in front of you, I think it's page 891. If you remember from last week, we talked about the purpose of the church and we said that uh, Jesus clearly gives us a mandate and he says the purpose of the church is to go and make disciples. Uh, those are our marching orders those are the instructions It, it can't be more clear than it is jesus said go and make disciples but we said that it's difficult to be obedient to that command that it's difficult to know if you're obedient to that command as a church or even as an individual unless you know precisely what a disciple is Oftentimes, people will say that they are in favor of those instructions, go and make disciples, but they struggle saying what a disciple is, and so uh, in, in reality, they're not obedient to the command. And so last week, we said that it's important not only to know that we're to make disciples, but to know that a disciple is, according to Scripture, someone, first of all, who loves God. Someone who has a passion for God, for reading God's word, for praying, for worshiping, for living a life that honors God. A disciple, number one, is someone who loves God. Number two, we said the Bible teaches us that a disciple is someone who loves people. In order to live out the Christian life in all of its fullness, we've got to be connected with people around us. Christianity is never presented as a personal religion. It's never, it's never presented as a solo sport, but it's something that we do in connection with other people. And so a disciple, a fully devoted follower of Christ loves God and loves people. And number three, he or she serves the church, serves the body. The body of Christ, we, we, we all have a part in the body of Christ. This local body of Christ that's represented here at 411 North Street, we are the body of Christ and all of us are a part of it. And as a part of the body, just as my body parts contribute to what my body is going to do, we all should contribute to what this body is going to do, what Christ is going to do in our community. And so we're to serve the body of Christ. And then we said, number four, if we're a fully devoted follower of Christ, we're going to be someone who serves the world. It's not just about taking care of our needs, it's not just about focusing on us, but it's about focusing on people who have never been to our church and many who never will come to our church because they live on the other side of the world, but they still need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And clearly, we cannot be a fully devoted follower of Christ unless we also have a passion and a commitment to go and take the gospel to everyone. And so a disciple loves God, loves people, serves the body and serves the world. That's our biblical definition for disciple. Now we said that there are two real applications for that. First of all, there's a personal application. When I think about the definition of a disciple, I can evaluate my own walk with the Lord. Am I loving God? Are there places and areas in my life where I could excel at loving God, where I could be more passionate about loving God? Am I loving people? Am I connected? Am I serving the body? Am I serving the world? And so we can use this as a little bit of a metric to see where we are in our Personal, spiritual lives so that we can measure our own spiritual maturity. But it's not just something that we can use personally. It's also something that we can use for our church. And so as a church, we're to go and make disciples. Are we intentionally as a church going and making disciples of people in a lost world so that people who are currently disconnected from God will soon love God and then love people and then serve the body and serve the world? Are we, are we taking people who are on the streets and are in their homes today, people that are not connected with God, and are we helping those people become fully devoted followers of Christ? Or are we just spinning our wheels? See, there are many churches, good churches, churches that are filled like this church, but they're they're churches that are spinning their wheels because they really aren't making disciples. Now, I don't think that's true of our church, but there's such a tendency. If we don't recommit ourselves to this often, we will be a church that is known more in heaven for our spinning wheels than we are known for our disciple making. You've probably heard the story. It's an old preacher story. We, we, we have been telling the story for years. It's an apocryphal story, uh, but I think it illustrates a good, a good way of thinking about things. There was an old life-saving station, for lack of a better word, on the on the east coast. Uh, it was in um, the northern part of the United States, and and so it, there in this uh, in this remote area where where ships would come in and fishing boats were were very active. Uh, Oftentimes these boats would wreck on the rocks or storms would come unexpectedly and boats would sink. And so so a group of men established this life-saving station. It was just a hut, there wasn't anything special about it. It was near the coast, they had a radio in there so they could listen to the emergency calls as they came in, they had a boat. And when they would get a call, even in the middle of the night, these men would risk their lives and go out and t- attempt to rescue people whose boats had uh, capsized or whose boats had, had, had collided into the rocks and they would, they would rescue. And in fact, they did rescue many, many people. And over the generations that this life saving station existed, they rescued many, many, many people uh, from the sea. But after a while, somebody pointed out one day as they were sitting around in the life-saving station that this just isn't very nice. Maybe this is just an old hut. Uh, it's, It's not very comfortable. Maybe we can spend some money and make it a little nicer. And so they did. They painted the walls and then they put carpet down and they put in a big screen television and a, a nice kitchen. I mean, they, 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 they really spent some money and they made it nice. The problem was they made it so nice that now the men were reluctant to go out and rescue somebody because they just loved hanging out in the life-saving station. And so as that became more and more of a problem, they decided the way to solve this problem is just to hire some people to go and do the life-saving work. That way, you know, the men could all hang out in the life-saving station and uh, they could watch the ball game and they could enjoy each other's company. We'll just hire some people to go out. And so they did that and that worked for a while and they, and they still, they rescued a number of people, but there was another problem. They would go out and rescue these these fishermen whose boats had capsized in the storm and they would bring them in and these guys were wet and they were stinky and they were dirty and they would walk on the good carpet and sit on the good chairs we can't have that and so then they decided that they would build a shower house you know a good distance from the from the main clubhouse they had they had started calling their their hut and that way these men could get cleaned up before they came into the the nice area. And that worked for a while until one of the families realized that as nice as that clubhouse is, I mean the shower house, if we could build a swimming pool next to it, you know, then in the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer, our families could come out and we could use the shower house and we could swim in the pool and that would just be wonderful. And so they built a pool. And that worked out until there was a big shipwreck one day, and they brought in scores of people, and they brought them into the shower house so that they wouldn't be in the clubhouse. And, but they made such a mess. Uh, again, they were wet, and they were, uh, they, were, they were not organized, and they left stuff around. And, and so the people got frustrated, and finally they just decided that they would put an end to the life-saving ventures now, they kept the name. They still called themselves a life-saving station. In fact, they kept their motto. Uh, we will risk it all to save one life. In fact, they would repeat the motto at the beginning of all of the club meetings. But all they did was sit around and watch ball games and enjoy each other's company. Now, of course, that's not a true story. But you recognize that there's truth in the story. You know what I mean? That that very easily can happen to a church. And it can very easily happen to a church like ours. If, if we understand that we've been given the mission to go and make disciples, then we need to have some metric. We, we need to make sure that we're accomplishing that, that we're focused on that. And we need to recognize how easy it would be for us to drift away from that and, and just enjoy each other's company and just enjoy a nice building and pretty songs and great fellowships and good food and to forget that God has put us here as a life-saving mission. To reach out into the world and rescue people who are lost in their sins. And so today, I I want us just to have a little wake-up call. I want us to be reminded of the tendency we have and the commitment that we need to make so that we will remain the life-saving station that God intends for us to be. So we'll look at Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 5, And I I want us to look together at a a pretty unusual story. Pretty unusual story that teaches an important truth. And I wanna begin with the end. Uh, The story has such an incredible ending. I don't want that to get lost in the details of the story. And so we're gonna begin right at the end of the story and then I will fill in the details. So let me ask you if you don't mind to stand. I just want us to give special reverence To the fact that we're reading the word of God. The word of God this morning. We're going to read beginning in verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, this is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is getting into a boat uh, to leave, to depart from an area. So as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed... We'll learn a little bit more about that in a moment, but a man who had been, past tense, had been demon possessed, begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Now that's a commendable request. Here's a man who has just been saved. He has been forgiven. He has been freed of this demon possession. Jesus is leaving and the man says, I would love nothing more than to just go with you, Jesus. Wherever you go, I want to go. I want to hear you teach. I want to hear you pray. I want to be in your ministry. Wherever you go, I want to go. That was his request. Seems like a good request. But look at verse 19. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus said, no you can't go with me. There's something better than going with Jesus. He says, go home and just tell people what has happened. And look what he he, he's obedient to that. Look what happens in verse 20. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. That's a 10 city area. That's what that means. How much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. What an incredible ending to an incredible story. Please be seated. Let's go back and see what exactly led to this remarkable event and how people all across a 10 city region were touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to see that, we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning. Acts, I'm sorry, Mark chapter five, verse one says, they came to the outer other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now, there, that begs some questions, right? So Jesus gets out of the boat and a man with, quote unquote, an unclean spirit meets him. Now, the phrase unclean spirit is the equivalent phrase to the word demonic that you find in other places in the New Testament. And so he says that this man had a demonic spirit. He was possessed by a demon. Now that would cause uh, educated people uh, around the world and for, uh, for, for many hundreds of years to ask the question, uh, what exactly is demon possession And is this something that is real? Are there really spirits? Are there angels? Are there demons? And do they influence our lives today? Now that's not really the subject of this message, but we wouldn't be faithful to scripture if we just skipped over this. So let let me seek to answer that. Some people have suggested through the years that what we read about in the Bible as demon possession is really just their ignorance in understanding medical issues. That really what these people were suffering from was epilepsy or they were suffering from chronic something, I don't know, but some, some medical ailment and since they didn't understand uh, medical ailments in those days like we would understand them today, they simply called them demon possession. Well, could that be the case? Well, it could not be the case. Now, whether you agree that demons are real or not, you have to understand that the Bible says that demons are real and that, and that the influence of a demon is something that is distinct from an illness. I can give you a number of verses, but let me point you just to one. i, I picked this one out because it's probably on the very same page that you're open to uh, in your Bible. Mark chapter four, verse 24 says, they brought Jesus all of the sick, and then it lists what what was wrong with these people. They, They brought those who were afflicted with diseases and pains. They also brought those who were oppressed by demons. They also brought people who were epileptic, paralytics, and Jesus healed them all. And so the Bible has one category for illness and disease, and the Bible has another category for demon possession, and the Bible sees those as distinct things. And so the Bible tells us that that demonic activity, that demons are something uh, that that is real. Now some people have a, a very unhealthy view of that. Some people see uh, a demon behind every bush, do you know people like that? No matter what happens, they say it 's a demon it 's a demon and and you know maybe sometimes it it is a demon, but but oftentimes it 's not. I had a worship pastor one time that every time something went wrong in the worship service, there was a sound issue or a video issue. Uh, he would say to the church uh, that there 's a demon in the sound system well. No, there wasn't a demon in the sound system. He just wasn't very prepared for the service, right? And and so we have to be careful that we're not one of those people that see a demon behind every bush. But on the other side, some people completely dismiss the demonic as just an uneducated myth. But the Bible says demons are real. Demons and evil forces are real. They have influence in our world and on people. Jesus Christ believed in demons and the Bible says that they're the cause of evil. Not of all evil, but of some evil, uh, they are the cause. And we make ourselves vulnerable. Here's why I'm spending time on this. We make ourselves unnecessarily vulnerable when we ignore demonic activity. In 1 Peter, chapter five, we're given this command. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, this, this is real. Now there's a, a continuum of how the demonic forces can influence a person. Uh, now we could talk about how this is different for people who don't know Christ and people who do know Christ and that, that perhaps would be the subject of another message. But, but let me just help you understand that there's a There are two ends to this range of how uh, demons can influence people. On one end, you have something as uh, simple yet as dangerous as temptation. The Bible says that some of our temptation, not all of it, but some of our temptation is... Finds its source in demons. It's, it's, it's the work of demons who are, who are tempting us to do things. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted by demonic forces. Matthew chapter four. Uh, the Bible says that Eve, Adam and Eve, Eve was tempted by demonic forces. We shouldn't assume that all temptation simply comes from the world. Some of it comes from demonic forces. And so on one end of the spectrum is, uh, is temptation. Demons can tempt us. Uh, About the middle, perhaps, of this continuum would be something that we would call a stronghold or an oppression. When when a demon continues to tempt us or we continue to give in to demonic temptation, it can create ruts, spiritual ruts in our lives. Uh, you, You know what a rut is. you got a dirt road and somebody... Uh, travels down that road over and over and over, eventually their tires are going to make ruts. And, and and you get in a rut, it's hard to get out of a rut, right? And so if we continue to give in to temptation, any kind of temptation, that can create spiritual ruts in our lives, and it's difficult to get out of those ruts. Uh, there, there are people, you know people, I know people, who, who have such deep ruts of sin in their lives that they want so badly to change and it is nearly impossible. I counsel with people who say, Pastor, I would do anything for this to be out of my life. And and oftentimes they're telling the truth about that but there's such spiritual ruts and, and, and that's a stronghold. Now let me just give you one example. I could give you many, but a simple example. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says this. In your anger, do not sin. So if you get angry, you need to be careful. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, what does it mean a foothold? Well, you continue to give in to your anger. It's going to create a rut in your spiritual life. It's going to give the devil a foothold in your life where he's going to cause all kind of damage. He may ruin your marriage. He may ruin your relationship with your children. He may cost you your job. He may cost you your reputation and your ministry, all kinds of things because he has a stronghold in your life. Does that make sense? And so we look at this continuum of how demons influence us. And we've got temptation over here. And then a little worse is a stronghold or an oppression. Uh, and then we get all the way to the other extreme. We have demon possession. And that's what is, is referred to here. Uh, so this man was possessed. He was controlled uh, by a demon. He, he, he was not a child of God. He did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. And he was controlled uh, by a demon. Now let's continue to read. It says, he lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Now let me just say a word about that. They, they tried every worldly technique they knew to solve this problem, but they couldn't. Why? Because this was a spiritual problem. Spiritual problems cannot be solved with worldly solutions. And if your problem, if your struggle, if the root of your difficulty is a spiritual problem, you will never find the solution in the world. The Bible says that peace comes from where? comes from God. The Bible says that joy comes from whom? From the Lord. And so if your problem is a lack of peace and a lack of joy, that's a spiritual problem. And the solution will be found nowhere except the Lord. And so here they attempt to solve a spiritual problem with a physical technique and they they fail. Well, continue to read. Verse five, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So he was acting irrationally. Verse six, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you before God, don't torment me. And so this is the demon speaking out. The demon recognizes the absolute authority of Jesus. Verse eight, for he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so Jesus is dealing with the problem. Verse nine, what is your name? Uh, Jesus asks the demon. Uh, my name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. And so here we're getting into some high weeds of, uh, of spiritual warfare. And, and we will come back to this someday that's very interesting. And there's, there are important things to know. But I want to continue on because I want to get down to the end of the story. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. And the demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. And so he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out of the the man and entered the pigs and the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Do you know why Jesus sent the demons to the pigs? Do you know? Well, I don't know either, but I went and had a barbecue sandwich this week and just pondered this for a while (laughs) and i I have determined that further research is uh, necessary. I'll let you know. Verse 14, the men who tended them ran off and reported it to the town and, and the countryside and people went in to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon possessed sitting there and dressed in his right mind and they were afraid. And so this man, listen, he has been saved. And he is a completely different man. Don't ever think that there's no hope for somebody. Don't ever think that somebody is so awful, so terrible, so far gone that they've been running too long, that they've run too far, that they can't be changed. With Jesus, anybody can be changed. And this man is completely changed. Uh, Verse 16, those who had... Seen it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. And then they began to beg him to leave their region. Uh, The people were upset, probably because of the financial loss. Verse 18. Now, we come to the verses that we had read before. I'm going to read them again, but but perhaps you'll see them in a little different light. And he, Jesus, was getting in the boat. And the demon-possessed man... Begged him earnestly that he might remain with him He said Jesus you've changed my life look at what I was before Look you've forgiven me. I'm I'm your child I've been I've been adopted into the family of God I mean he wouldn't have known all of the language, but but he knew Jesus had done something amazing and So he has this simple request. Jesus. Can I go with you in in most cases? That would have been a very commendable request. But Jesus says in verse 19, no. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them uh, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the next verse, he does that and it has great consequences and results. Uh, That's what I want to focus on for just a few minutes. Uh, How can we like this man go public with our faith so here's a man who had a a personal conversion experience and he wanted to just stay with jesus but jesus said no you need to go public and how he did this i think is important and instructive so that we'll know how to do the same both as individuals and as a church so let me share with you three quick things uh, that this man did according to these verses to go public with his faith number one he refused to withdraw he he refused to withdraw uh, out of society and out of the Uh, the neighborhood and the community where he lived, he refused to withdraw and just go with Jesus. He stayed in a public place. Now, you know that the tendency is to withdraw. When you come to know Christ as your savior, if you have a sweet fellowship with Jesus, if you love worship, if you love prayer, if you love reading your Bible, if you love Christian fellowship and locking arms with other believers, the temptation is let's just Let's just all get together and ignore everybody else. This is great. I mean, God's given us a wonderful, sweet fellowship. It's fun to come here. It's good to be connected with people. Some of you can't wait until Sunday school starts because that's one of the most important things in your life, and all of that is good. It it is amazing to walk with Jesus, but we have to see here that Jesus doesn't want us to walk with him instead of engaging with our culture. Here was a man who said, I want to go with with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you need to stay in your hometown. You need to keep working where you've been working. You need to live where you live. You need to shop where you shop. You need to have an impact in your your hometown. You, You must not withdraw. The best way to celebrate what Jesus has done for us is what? Is to tell other people. Have you noticed um, that the biggest football fans are easy to pick out? Have you noticed that? Now how can you tell if somebody is a big Texas A&M fan uh, on, a, on a Saturday morning at the grocery store? How, how can you tell? Because they've got their, they got their shirt on. They're they, dressed, they've got, their, their, their dress. they got stickers on their car that, that talk about the school and the football team and see, the, the, they are excited about their football team, and they do it in such a way that it that, that it is public. How do we celebrate? How do we how do we get excited about Jesus? Well, uh, number one, we go. He commands us to go. That's how we 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 get excited about Jesus. We go and tell people about Jesus. Uh, just some. Just maybe some random facts, but the Bible underscores this so many ways. There are many ways I could illustrate this, but I thought about our youth choir this morning. And so what do we call our youth choir here? Uh, Ekklesia. You ever wonder what that means? That is the Greek word for Church. And so when you see in your New Testament, not every time, but 90% of the times when you see the word church in the New Testament, the Greek word is ekklesia, what we call our youth choir. It's on their shirts, I noticed this morning, ekklesia. Now, what does that word actually mean? It's translated church most of the time, but what does it mean? Well, it's a compound word. It means to be called out. It means to be called forth. And so when the first church gathered together, what did they call them? They said, this is the group of people who have been called to go out. It's not the group who have been called to come in. Now we do come in for worship and training and prayer, but but we're characterized by the fact that Jesus has told us to go out. And and we see that even in the title, in, in the original title of our assembly, we are the called out ones. We celebrate Christ most when we go and we tell others. We celebrate the fact that we have been saved when we go and tell others about our salvation. Did you know that Jesus' very first command was to go and tell others? If you you just scour the New Testament, the very first command that Jesus ever gave is found in Matthew chapter four, verse 19, when he said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He said, we're going to go and we're going to get some men. We're going to get some people and we're going to tell them about about the good news of forgiveness and salvation. I want to make you fishers of men. That was the very first command that Jesus gave. What was the last command that Jesus gave before he ascended out of this earth? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. His last command is to go and share the gospel everywhere. And so we refuse to withdraw. We celebrate Christ by going, by going. Number two, we celebrate this, or the reason we celebrate it outwardly is because. Thankfulness and adoration have no value unless they're expressed. Thankfulness and adoration, if you're thankful in your heart and it never makes it to your lips, you are not thankful. And we've talked about this, I think, even in recent weeks. I shared an illustration with you, and I, I hate to repeat myself, but, but, but I've shared with you how, how often I have said in the counseling room, with a husband and a wife, been married a number of years, and I'll say, well, what is, what is the problem? What brings you here today? And the wife will say, well, my husband just doesn't care about anything I, I ever do for him. I do this, and I do this, and I take care of this, and I, and I do this, and, and she runs through a whole laundry list of things that she does, and she says, he doesn't care at all. He's not thankful for anything I do around the house or for him. And so I look to the husband and say, is that true? What do you think he says? He says, of course I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all those things. Now, where's the disconnect? Why does she think he's not thankful and he thinks he is? Because he thinks it's okay to be thankful in his heart. (laughs) But she knows the truth. If thankfulness doesn't come out of your lips, it's not thankfulness. It has no value. And so if we're thankful, are you thankful that Christ has saved you and forgiven you and and made you into into his son? then let's say it. Let's say it. Let's sing it in here. Let's say it to one another. But let's go out into the highways and the hedges and let's say it. We say it. Uh, We refuse to withdraw. And and the third reason why we we should do it this way is simply because God loves people. As I shared with you, the tendency in every church, listen, in every church, the tendency (laughs) is for it to become less and less about people out there and more and more about people in here. But God has given us the church, not for us, but for other people. If it were just about us, as we said last week, God would just take us on to heaven. The church is a life-saving station, and we don't need to fix it up so nice and get so comfortable that that we don't ever go out into the ocean and save some lives. We need to recognize that God loves people. And if we're going to honor God, we've got to have that same kind of love. The motto of our church should be verse 19. Look at it again. We've read it twice now, but I want to read it again. Verse 19 ought to be the motto of our church. It says, Jesus did not let him go, but he told him this. Here's the motto go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That ought to, that ought to be the command that we follow every time we leave this place. I mean, perhaps, I mean, you get monotonous after a while, but perhaps we ought to just get a deacon up here to read this every Sunday as we leave, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown you grace. We, we ought to, We ought to be obedient to that every day because God loves people and we ought to love people. So how did this man go public with his faith? Number one, he refused to withdraw. Number two, he reported to his neighbors. Now let's talk about this specifically. Who does Jesus tell him to go to? Now your Bible might say, um, like mine says, uh, go to your own people. Go home to your own people. Different translations are going to say different things. Some of your Bibles will say, go to your neighbors. Some will say, go to your friends. Some will say, go to your city. Uh, In in the original language, it's interesting. Uh, It just says, go to your. It doesn't even fill in the blank. It's it's as if there was a blank here. It says, go to your your tausaus is what it says in Greek. It, It just go to your. Go to your. Go to your what? Well, what he's telling us is we just need to go down our path. Who should you go to? Go to the people you see every day. Go to the people who live around you. Go to the people who work with you. Go to the people who go to school with you. Go to the people across the dorm hallway from you. Go, go to the people in your family. Go to yours, your whatever, your city, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, your home. Go to yours. Tell everybody on your path. Now, why do you, why do you think we're so bad at this? Uh, why? And I'm not fussing at you. I'm, I'm thinking about me. Why? Why am I so, so bad at this? It's much easier for me to preach a message, uh, Sunday morning, and stand up here in front of hundreds of people, and, and, and many more hundreds on television, and, sh- and share the gospel. I, that's easy. Uh, but to tell somebody in my in my neighborhood, it's hard. Uh, to tell somebody. Um, in my path is, is, is difficult. What, why do you think that is? Why are we so poor at this, uh, this command? Well, I, I spent some time on this this week. I think there's, there are four reasons that could be true, but I don't think they're often true. Let me give these to you first. And maybe one of these is the reason why you struggle to be more obedient, sharing the gospel. Maybe it's that you just don't know how to share the gospel. And that would be true of somebody, Uh, although I think oftentimes when people say they don't know how, uh, as we'll see in a moment, it's just, uh, that's just an excuse. I think most of us, we know how to share the gospel. Some people might be better than others, and some people could use more scripture verses and illustrations or whatever than others, but but for some people, you don't share the gospel because you don't know how. For some people, you don't share the gospel because you fear that somebody would reject uh, what you have to say. You, you just have a fear of rejection. And I think that's legitimate, but uh, you, we give advice on all kinds of other things. Have you noticed? Uh, you, you, get a, you get a runny nose and see how many people at uh, work tomorrow will tell you some remedy they heard of for your runny nose or whatever else ails you. You, 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 you say you're going to go out and, 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 and eat uh, a, a barbecue meal and and, and wait and see how many people will give you advice on what restaurant you ought to go to when you get to Dallas. We, we, we're okay with giving advice, but, but maybe some people don't share the gospel because they fear rejection. Uh, number three, maybe some people don't share the gospel because they don't believe in the power of God to change lives. Uh, I think most of us believe in the power of God. Some people don't share the gospel because they fear persecution. What will happen at work if I share the gospel, will I get in trouble Uh, What what will be the repercussions? But I think for most of us, there are two reasons, and they're the same two reasons that this formerly demon-possessed man was reluctant. There are two reasons that keep us from sharing the gospel. Number one, I fear what people will think about me. I'm worried, what are people gonna think? If I share the gospel, if I were to go down the street you know, six doors down one direction or the other and I were to share the gospel with my neighbor and saying, you know, I'm the guy that lives down there in that funny looking house. And I just came to tell you a little bit about uh, my my savior. I I, uh, I don't know for sure if you're if you know Christ is your savior, but I want to tell you. We're worried what other people might think if we would do that. Well, we need to have a change in perspective. Second Timothy one eight says, do not be ashamed this is what the Paul told Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So if, if God's gospel, if the gospel of Christ can change someone's life, then we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Let us pray that God will give us Boldness. If your, if your neighbor's house was on fire, if you saw smoke coming out of, the, out of the attic, you wouldn't hesitate to ring their doorbell and to tell them, I'm sorry I'm interrupting your dinner, but your house is on fire. Let us have the same kind of boldness when it comes to the gospel of Christ. The reason number two, and this maybe is, is even more uh, true, I think we don't share the gospel because we just don't care about other people. I think sometimes we're so wrapped up in our world, in our lives, and our problems, in our hopes and dreams, that we just don't care about other people. Church, uh, I've been a pastor long enough to know that just beating you over the head and making you feel guilty uh, won't accomplish very much. I mean, we could have a, a message about sharing the gospel and try to make everybody feel Just about that small. If you hadn't shared the gospel in the last week, Um, that's that wouldn't be effective. Let's just admit. Here's what I'm asking you to do. If the reason you're not sharing the gospel is you just don't care enough, I don't want you. I'm not trying to get you to feel bad about that. I just want you to admit it, not not to me, but to the Lord. That you know, I just really don't care that much about my neighbors. I just don't really care that much about the people that go to school with me. Because the first step to having a heart of love is to admit, I don't care enough. And then ask God to give you a heart like his heart. So I don't think that there's some deep spiritual sickness that we have. I just think that we have fallen in love more with the things of the world than the things that God loves So admit to God, God, my real problem is I just don't think I care enough. I want to, I don't. I ask you, first of all, to give me a heart, uh, give me a heart of love. Help me to love people like you love people. And then spend some time thanking God for your salvation. You know, I think we forget. I've been saved for 31 years. I think we forget sometimes just where our lives would be had God not provided a way for us to come to know him as his savior, as our savior. And I think if we could just, if we could just remember, it would motivate us to help other people experience the same thing. And then be thankful for the, for the person or the people who are most influential in you coming to know the Lord. And so I don't have time to share my, my whole testimony, but there was a, a particular young lady uh, when I was in high school that was instrumental. God used her to lead me to Christ. Her name, uh, Alicia Holbrook today, it used to be uh, Alicia Franklin. And, and so about every two or three years, uh, I sit down and I, uh, I pen her a letter and I send it to her and I thank her for being bold enough to share the gospel with me in high school. And I th- if you'll do those things, if you'll admit that you just don't have enough love for other people, you ask God to give you love, you appreciate, you remember what God has done for you and who God used. And I think God will give you the love that you need to motivate you and motivate me to share the gospel. Well, number three, very quickly, how did, how did this uh, person go public? How did this man go public with his faith? He recounted his story. He recounted, you have to recount your story. And I I want you to see what Jesus told him to say. And I want you to see how easy this is. Jesus says, go home to your own people and report to them. So here's what he had to report. How much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is all you have to do. Would you go to somebody this week and do those two things? Tell God, or tell them rather, how much God has done for you and then how the Lord has shown mercy to you. So let me tell you how that works. God has changed my life. You wanna know how much God has done for me? God has done so much for me, not only has he given me forgiveness and put me on a new path, but I was headed down a path that would have led, led to destruction. I was, and I could give all of the details if I had more time. But God has put me on a path where I know his forgiveness and I know his love. And God has blessed me with a wonderful family. God has, God has blessed me with a purpose and a mission in life. God has given me peace and joy. Listen, God has done great things for me. So that's how much the Lord has done. And then the second part, how has the Lord shown mercy? The way God has done that is I'm guilty of sin, but Jesus died on the cross and he paid the penalty that I owe. And when I trusted in that, that was the trigger that made me a child of God. Can you do that? Can you, could you tell somebody how much God has done for you and then how God's mercy works? That, that, that's, that's all you have to do. Here's how much God has done for me and here's how God's mercy works. And if we'll go public with our faith, like this man went public with his faith, then the same thing will happen in our lives that happened in his life. Verse 20, people were amazed all over his neighborhood. The Decapolis, D-E-C means 10, Paulus means city. So over a 10 city area, there have been small cities, but over his entire East Texas home, uh, people were amazed because he just said how much God had done and how God's mercy worked. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. So the challenge is two two part this morning. One, maybe you don't know Christ as your savior. And so I've had the opportunity just to stand here and tell you, God has done incredible things in my life and the lives of many of the people around you. And they know peace and joy and hope. They know forgiveness. And the way he has done that is through the work of Jesus Christ. And I came to the point in my life when I understood that I was hopeless in my sins and the only chance I had was to let Jesus pay the penalty. And I trusted what he did when he shed his blood on the cross. And God changed me when I did that. When I trusted, when I repented of my sins and surrendered to him. If you've never experienced that, you can experience it right with us. In a moment, we'll stand and sing, and I'll invite you to come down. There will be some ministers standing with me in the front, and they will be, they would make their day to be able to talk to you about, about that. But many of us, we know Christ is our Savior, but we're like this formerly demon-possessed man. If it were up to us, we'd just want to hang with Jesus all the time. But Jesus says, no. says, no. You should go to Bible studies, but there's a, there's a limit how many Bible studies you, go, you should go to. You should go to church, but there's a limit. You should read your Bible, but there's a limit. You need, to, you need to also go to your neighborhood. You need to go home, and you need to tell people what Jesus has done for you. Father, help us to have a love for people that will change our conduct and give us a passion for sharing the gospel And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.